John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father God, I just thank you for us all being together here and having fun and being receivers of this teaching that's going to come to us today and penetrate our hearts so that we can go out to the world and be a witness for you. And I ask that you bless John for this teaching today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. So if you want to know a little bit something about me, which you don't need to, uh, but I think we share this in common. I am one who loves clarity. Anybody else like clarity? Okay. When things are ambiguous, okay, a mystery novel, sure. But when it comes to life and purpose and all that, I am one who loves clarity. And especially in a world where everything is muddy, I think there's a growing appreciation for a little bit of clarity. And that's why I picked John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 for our main portion of the text, is that John is very, very clear as to why he wrote what he wrote. He, he just gives it to you straight. He says, at the end of this account, the reason why he wrote all of these things is this, that you may believe in Jesus. Now, he could have written a whole lot of things. In fact, he says at the very end of his account, the last verse in the book of John is, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But the things that John did record and did put into these 21 chapters that we have, these things are written that you, reader, observer may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that, that you may see who this Jesus is as Messiah, that is the one that is connected to this entire story that we've been going through this whole year, that you may believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and believe in him. That word believe is central throughout this book. John uses that word 54 times in 48 verses. And believing doesn't mean simply mental assent, that you may have some facts about Jesus, but that believing, meaning trusting, living into, obeying, having confidence in Jesus, that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That you may be, uh, I don't know, a good name for a church, you, you may experience union with him. That's it. That's why we have his account. It's clear and it's invitational, but John's gospel is unlike any of the other gospels. In fact, my wife sent me this meme this week uh, that there's the synoptic gospels represented by, you know, clear-cut Tiger Woods in the gospel of John, John Daly. That's funny. And then I saw one more. That led me down a rabbit hole of one more where it's uh, John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's a little bit different in his approach and what he gives an account of. He is the, the witness, the first-hand observer of Jesus and, and 
puts on record one of his closest followers. John says of himself, he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I wonder, I, this is just me, this, isn't, this is total speculation, this isn't authoritative, theological, anything. I just wonder if the other disciples when they read that were like, oh gosh, <laughs> that guy. I appreciate also that John records that he beat Peter to the tomb, running, like in the resurrection. He just, I, I appreciate that. And everybody, I, I, here's another personality profile test that we could develop later on. I haven't put any thought into it until just now. Uh, you can have a personality profile test of who you are based on which gospel is your favorite, whether you prefer Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But John's gospel shows a lot, and what I'm going to condense it down to is what the title is, and it should be up on the screen, that in a world of darkness, Jesus is light. In a world of death, Jesus is life. In a world of despair, Jesus is love. And this is a bit of the, the, the beauty and the intensity that John has. He starts his book off with this really beautiful, intricate poetry that starts in chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. I'll read it. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's this dense and beautiful poetry that deserves a little bit of time to understand, although my temptation was a little bit reading it and going, the word was with God, the word was God, and just going, word. <laughs> Let's move along. Like, what is he actually talking about here? But I am going to do my best Anthony Garcia impersonation to you know, do a little bit of a scholastic deep dive so that we all can understand, because it is important to what John is attempting to do in his gospel. As you begin this book, and it says, in the beginning, anybody want to give a, a stab at what he's going back to in that? Any other book of the Bible that starts with, in the beginning? Genesis. Good, you all were paying attention on in January when we went through it. Thank you. In the beginning gives echoes of Genesis. And then he says, in the beginning was the word. In the Greek, that word is logos, logos, if you're, you know, fancy. And there's a lot of discussion around this particular word because it was a big idea in the Greco-Roman world in which Jesus was born into. And also there's some Hebrew undertones to it that we'll get into. What is John trying to convey? This is where I go to smarter people than myself. The ESV Study Bible says this. The term the word, that is logos, logos, conveys the notion of divine self-expression or speech and has a rich Old Testament background. God's word is effective. God speaks and things come into being. And you see that in Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah. John also shows how this concept of the word is superior to a Greek philosophical concept of the word, logos, as an impersonal principle of reason that gives order to the universe. And the word was with God, indicates interpersonal relationship with God. But then the word was God affirms that this word was also the same God who created the universe in the beginning. Here's why it's important. 
These are the building blocks that go into the doctrine of the Trinity. The one true God consists of more than one person. They relate to each other and have always existed. Now, if you're a little bit like me, you're like, I think I get it. We might be onto something there. Throughout Scripture, God shows himself to just be the self-evident, always existing creator. This God works. He speaks. He's powerful. He brings light into darkness. That is the beginning of Scripture. God's first act that we see recorded in Genesis is God says, let there be light. And there's light that shines into this darkness. But as the creation account continues, uh, darkness enters in, or darkness breaks the creation through sin and the serpent and man and woman's disobedience. God creates and the world breaks, but there's this light that still shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome the light. And, and that's a fight that you can bet on every single time. If you're a better, which I don't necessarily condone or encourage, um, Nah, slightly from personal experience, but <laughs> anyways, um, light will always beat darkness every single time. One of my seminary professors, Al Wolters, he said, God doesn't make junk and God doesn't junk what he makes. And so as we've been witness to this entire year, God is after redeeming and recreating that which was broken. And then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Creator enters into creation and begins or continues, fulfills this work of redemption. We got a little bit of a scholastic definition of the word logos concept in the ESV study Bible. I wanna give you a little bit more of a poetic one from Frederick Buchner. He goes into the Hebrew meaning. He says the Hebrew term debar means both word and deed, which is translated in the Greek to logos, okay? So the Hebrew word debar means both word and deed. Thus to say something is to do something. I love you. I hate you. I forgive you. I am afraid of you. Who knows what such words do, but whatever it is, it can never be undone. Something that lay hidden in the heart is irrevocably released through speech into time and is given substance and tossed like a stone into the pool of history, where the concentric rings lap out endlessly. In the beginning was the word, says John, meaning perhaps that before the beginning there was something like silence, not the absence of sound because there was no sound yet to be absent, but the absence of absence. Nothing, nothing. Then the word, the deed, the beginning. The beginning in time of time. The word was with God and the word was God, says John. By uttering himself, God makes God heard and makes God hearers. God never seems to be weary of trying to get across to us. Word after word, God tries in search of the right word. When the creation itself doesn't seem to say it right, sun, moon, stars, all of it, God tries flesh and blood. 
And that's what we see in verse 14, as Jesus enters into creation. And I think from giving a little bit of thought to that, and I can sense even my own uh, limitations in language to describe who God is, how it all works. And I think when we begin to sense that vastness, the enormity, we might be at the beginning of a little bit of wisdom. When God is no longer perfectly fitting inside the box of our mind and our hearts, when, when all of a sudden we are going yet again like, I don't fully understand and grasp God, maybe we're at the threshold of seeing God, of understanding this God is wild and massive and wonderful and has revealed himself in Jesus. It would be good to pay attention there. Because Jesus brings words and deeds and light into the fabric of the first century world. He interacts through John's gospel with all of Jewish life. He's found in weddings at the temple. He interacts with a rabbi in chapter number three. He uh, is famously with a woman at the well in John chapter number four. He interacts with the different feasts that they would, would observe in Sabbath, Passover, Tabernacle, in Hanukkah. And what Jesus does as being the light of the world is he produces life in those places. Light produces life in those places where sin had brought darkness and destruction and death and despair. The light of the world brings new life into the world. And that's what we can see as we're actually honest with the way that things have been because of sin. It's when we're dishonest and just think, like, it's not actually that bad. The world isn't really that broken. We aren't that desperate that we can kind of put makeup on ourselves and think, well, who really needs a savior? But John goes to great lengths to show the brokenness of humanity and the light that Jesus brings into those places. Theologian Mary Colo says this, the jo and ugh, theologians, they drive me nuts, the Johannine, John's model, of salvation is, I, I just, again, I read theology books and they drive me nuts. And Johannine, mm, oh, fancy. Uh, that model of salvation is, in the light of the Exodus, an act of liberation from the dominion of slavery to the freedom of children within the household and temple of God. In this model, John's model, there's liberation from sin, where sin is perceived as a power which enslaves humanity to the ruler of this world. Just as Israel was once held captive within the house of slavery. But with the incarnation of Jesus, the true king has come, offering life and freedom. That's why Jesus entered into the world. And in reading through this gospel, I think we would do well to not only see the vastness of God, who he is and how he's worked, and, and the goodness of Jesus, we would do well to allow that to reshape and reframe our ideas and understanding about God as the light and life bringer to humanity. Now, all of us enter into this room with our preconceived notions of who God is and how he works, and there's a myriad of reasons that we have behind that. Our family of origin, the way that our fathers treated us, the uh, way that our youth pastor was or wasn't, and I have my own baggage there. Anthony, the other pastor, he's, he was my youth pastor, so again, like, what is wrong with this guy? He's my youth pastor. <laughs> all sorts of things 
for better and for worse, shape our understanding of God. Now, you may come in here and you see God as the divine buzzkill. He's the rule implementer. He's with a big hammer looking to smash all of your fun and enjoyment in life. Or you see God as just simply a supplement to life, you know, kind of something you need to do for an hour, hour and a half. It's kind of tradition. It's important. It's good for the kids, whatever. Um, or you see, well, I got to go through this because, you know, there's a moral code I got to follow through, and this is one of the boxes I need to check that if I, when I die, I want to go to heaven, and that's kind of the golden ticket is you got to believe in Jesus for that. So here I am. I, I don't know your understanding and baggage that you bring into this room about God, but Jesus shows us who God is. And, and, and what he shows us is that God is so much bigger and better and, and dare I say, more fun than we would ever imagine. Jesus brings light and Jesus brings life into the world and saves it. He says so much in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he's interacting and he says this, the thief, which is the enemy, the devil, the thief comes only to steal to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now we need to evaluate in our hearts how we tend to believe the lies that the enemy gives that lead towards stealing, killing, and destroying. Those dehumanizing tendencies that are within us and within the world. We need to realize that. And we need to see the invitation that Jesus gives us towards life in that to the full. This passage led me down a little bit of a, of a you know, side trail. Uh, if you haven't read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, it's a wonderful collection and reflection on how the enemy works. And if you aren't familiar with the book, it is C.S. Lewis's imagination of an older demon writing to a younger demon that is trying to derail a Christian, right? And so he goes into all the ways in which this demon should tempt this individual away from what he calls the enemy to be God. And I selected a couple passages to share because I think they do well to remind us how the enemy works. So C.S. Lewis writes and says, Never forget that when we, this is the enemy, are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy. That is God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasure which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Then he says, when he talks of them losing their selves, he only means that abandoning the clamor of self-will. Once they have done that, he really gives them back all their personality and boasts. I'm afraid sincerely that when they are wholly his, they will be more themselves than ever. I'm going to read through the whole of it. It's a wonderful little collection and is quite clever. But you see this on repeat in the interactions that Jesus has with humanity. He interacts with this woman at the well in John chapter number four that seems to have had a really difficult life, a number of marriages, all of that. Jesus gently and, and lovingly 
gets her to unfold her life story. He knows her. And, and her reaction to Jesus is to go tell everybody. And, and she says this line, he told me everything that I ever did. And is happy about that. <laughs> Jesus knew me completely and fully like nobody ever before. And I want to tell everybody about that. That's the way this God is. And we, gosh, there's the caricature of, well, what if God put on this screen everything you've ever done? You're like, oh, gosh, shame, guilt, pain, embarrassment. But it seems if we truly are interacting with the God of Scripture and Jesus of the Bible, it's like, that's great news. If he were to do that with me, I would feel nothing but loved. I don't have anything to hide. He, he's the one who lifts shame from us. The life that Jesus brings into the world is one that is full of love. How does he do that? Well, who he is is how he rolls. John is well known for using uh, the number seven throughout this account. And I'll put the Bible Project's little image on the screen. Who Jesus is, seven times he goes through. He says, I am the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the gate for the sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true vine. Who he is, Jesus is using God's covenant name that goes back to Exodus in the burning bush. When Moses is at the burning bush and he's like, okay, great, I'm, I'm your messenger. Who do I say? What, what do I tell people? Who, what's your name? And he's just, I am. Okay. I am that I am. God's self-disclosed covenant name. And Jesus says seven times throughout his gospel, just the statement, I am. There's seven signs through which Jesus works. Water into wine, healing of a sick man. Uh, boy, paralyzed man, feeding the 5,000. Healing of a blind man, raising Lazarus, and then his resurrection, ultimately. Who Jesus is, is shown in how he works. And there's this continued collision that happens with light and darkness with life and death, with love in the depression and despair in the midst of the world that ultimately leads to the cross, that these leaders both in Rome and in Israel resisted the light, denied the life of the world, and it comes together in this plot to kill Jesus after he had raised Lazarus from the dead. The love of Jesus is on display as he confronts the forces of evil, as he carries the sin of the world, as he pays our debt on the cross. There's victory that is shown in the resurrection, which we can hear. And if you've gone to church for any amount of time, I've probably said nothing new that you didn't already know of who Jesus is and, and what he's accomplished. And it can seem for us some 2,000-ish years later, that's great for them what we wouldn't give to get a front row seat to that, right? To see Jesus in person. If only we could see and experience. But in John's gospel, it's one of the craziest verses in promises that the disciples, I don't think, fully wrap their head around, and we can struggle to do the same. But Jesus is giving them instruction on what life is going to look like once he's gone, that he is heading towards a cross, and they don't fully grasp it. And Jesus lays this out in chapter 16, verse 6 through 12. He says this, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Which I go, what? That's insane. But it's not because he's God and I'm the crazy one. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus is unfolding something critical that the prophets had pointed to, that there is going to be this work in the Messiah that will send God's Spirit to humanity. That for all the people of all the world, Jesus is light and life and love. And for anybody that would come to him, they can experience this. And you go, well, how if he's not here physically in the world? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit activates and enables Christ's work in the human heart. You could do a study, and maybe this is a series for another time, and Anthony can write a book, and it can become a bestseller, and he'll be famous. The, the work of the Spirit in John's Gospel. Because what Jesus shows us, and John goes to great lengths to, to lay out in his account, is just how critical and important the work of the Spirit is in and for disciples of Jesus. That Jesus makes all these radical promises of light in the believer and him being the bread of life and you'll never thirst and you'll never be hungry and all these things. And you go, how? And, and it's, it's hilarious because nobody gets it. He says, you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And everybody's like, what? This doesn't make any sense. But the avenue we see in hindsight the avenue to access this life in Christ is, is abiding, and the power to abide is provided by his spirit. Just a quick glance over, the spirit is the one who will comfort, who will help, who empowers, who teaches, who reminds, who convicts, who fills, who seals, who helps, who renews, who sanctifies, who guides, who speaks. The third member of the Trinity. How? By knowing by proximity, by communication, Jesus sums it up in a word in John 15, by abiding in him. He says, he is the vine, we are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit, for without him you can do nothing. Now this is, again, where we step into a little bit of mystery, because it's really simple in how we abide in Christ. It's through his word, it's through the gift of prayer, and it's through his community. Right? That, that is it. Those are the three avenues through which we have of abiding in Christ. He gives us his word. He gives us the gift of prayer. He gives us his people. And, and, but it's not a step one, step two, step three. Congratulations. Golden ticket. Although there's a huge publishing industry and conferences and all this that will sell you on many ideas of how to. And there's tons of helpful resources out there. I don't want to diminish any of it, but life with God is a beautiful mystery in it all. There is this knowing that we are to do, this, this continuing to add to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, Peter would say in one of his letters. That there is, for some of us, we need to grow in the knowledge aspect of life with God. But then there's this resting 
and enjoying and being with God that others of us need to enjoy. And I've had this image in my mind over the last few weeks uh, that life with God is a little bit like a slide. In that, some of us feel as though we're on this unending ladder of life. And again, there is aspects to life with God that is, you know, work. You have to show up and read and pray and grow. Like there is this aspect of effort that we put involved, not to earn, but in response to the grace that God has shown us. And so, yeah, you, there's this ladder of life that we kind of climb and we can read a book and memorize some scripture and spend time in prayer and with a small group, whatever. Like there's that aspect, but if it's never for the purpose of enjoying and being with God, we're missing the point. And I'm one that just tends to stay on the ladder. It's like, I'll go up the ladder, down the ladder, up the ladder, down the ladder, and where are you? And God's like, go down the sink and slide, dummy. That's my own internal voice. God loves you. He doesn't call you dumb or anything like that. Unless you're dumb, then take it for what it is. And where others of us, it's like, you just want to stay on the slide, but to go down the slide, you've got to climb up the ladder. And in it, like any good parent, God is with you every single step of the way. There's not a parent that I know of that has a little two-year-old. And, you know, say you're, have you been to the slide at uh, Mountain Club Park that's like, was built probably in the 60s, so it's not up to code now because it's probably 10 feet tall. It's made of steel. Your kid's going about 80 miles an hour by the time they're at the bottom of the thing. Any good parent is behind the kid as they're climbing the slide. And we can believe the lie, well, I'm all by myself. This is so hard. It's like, no, God's there with you as you're doing the work. And God's there with you, catching you at the bottom. You're never alone in the midst of that process. Life with God is this perpetual process of abiding with him, of, of spending the time and, and practicing the discipline of actually being aware of where you're at and what God is doing. It is not just about knowing God, but it is about being known by God, and both of these things are at work at the same time. Again, some are going, well, I just want to know God, and I want to know more, and so you consume, and you consume, and you consume. But you haven't done what David does in Psalm 139, where he says, search me, O God, and try my heart. What would it look like if this week you just slowed down, and you said, God, search me, and know me? All of a sudden, you're like, ah, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, that's probably good. God, show me where I'm at. God, show me what I need. God, show me the next step. God, search me and know me. Try me, know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me, rather than just consume, 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 learn, learn, learn. Like, allow God to know you as you grow in knowing him. John's gospel shows how the Spirit of God then ultimately not only empowers, but he gathers his people, he transforms his people, equips his people, and then sends God's people in the world on the mission of Jesus. This is John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. This is after the resurrection. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends 
his disciples, those who have believed in him, in the same exact mission that the Father sent him on. This is how Jesus' mission moves into the world. It's through broken, imperfect people that are equipped and abiding in him. And we'll see more of that next week in Luke and Acts. And so here's how it works. In the world of darkness, the light is given in Christ to be shown to the world through his followers. Jesus says one of his I am statements in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who walks in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that word have in the Greek is the word echo, where we get the word echo. <laughs> he says he's the light, and he gives that light to his people that wherever they go and whatever they do, they are to emanate and echo and, and shine that light to the world. He says it to his followers in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel. You are salt. You are light. You are to reflect the life of Christ to the world. So in a world of darkness, light is given to be shown. You teach your kids, hide it under a bushel? No! You're going to let it shine. In a world of death, life is generated by the cross and resurrection to then be shared with the world. In a world of despair, love is gifted to be spread. And it's not just you need to go tell people information about Jesus, that we need to tell people information about Jesus. Look how Jesus loved. He knew them. He loved them. And transformation happens. I, mean, I, I don't want to speak ill of any type of evangelism that people are offering, but too many times it's just a megaphone with information and people aren't loved in that. But Jesus calls us to know people, to love people, and to show them the light in life that Jesus gives. And so this is the clarity that we see in John, that Jesus is who he says he is, and we know that by how he works and what he does. And so the call for us today is the same. Believe in Jesus. And by believing, that means follow Jesus. Know Jesus. Be known by Jesus. And allow that transformation to show in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our places of work, as we follow Jesus, we show Jesus to those around us. I'll close with this quote by Eugene Peterson. Following Jesus is not a skill we acquire. Following Jesus is not a strategy we work out. It is obedience, my Lord. It is worship, my God. No religious skills that you and I acquire will ever produce resurrection. No spiritual strategies that we work on will ever produce resurrection. Following Jesus doesn't get us where we want to go. It gets us where Jesus wants us to go. Let's pray. So Jesus, we ask for your help in following you. We ask for clarity to see where our own agendas and hearts have distorted your work and your message, and we ask for clarity 
in what obedience looks like to you today. And so we thank you that you are still active in your church, that your spirit is still present and powerful and transforming and equipping and comforting. And so where we are and with what we need, we ask for you to work so that this world through this little church known as Union would share your light, would experience your life and would demonstrate your love through what we say and what we do. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.